Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we live in a remarkable time in this church age. You have given us so many assets, the least, not the least of which is the fact that we are indwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit, and also that we have a completed canon of Scripture. You have given us a spiritual life that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and that you also function as our high priest during, your, during the Lord's present session in heaven. And Father, we pray that as the Lord Jesus Christ guides and directs the church and as the Holy Spirit works in our lives to uh, produce maturity in our lives, we pray that we would be responsive and that we would continue to be positive and not treat the wonderful blessings that we have in a, in a light manner. Now, Father, as we study these things this evening, we pray that you'd strengthen and encourage us and, and once again give us a greater appreciation for all that we have in Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 7, and last time as we got started, uh, we beginning in verse 11, we were looking at this contrast that is being made by the author between the Levitical priesthood, which had dominated uh, Israel since the inception of the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai, and a previous and older and more extensive priesthood, called the Melchizedekian priesthood. So just in terms of review of what we're seeing in this passage, wait a minute. See, this is what happens when you get all new stuff, new toys. Okay, back to point one. The basic contrast here is between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is going to be shown to be temporary, Point two, the writer is going to show that the Levitical priesthood was intended to be temporary, but the Melchizedekian priesthood is permanent. Now, when we think about the Melchizedekian priesthood, it seems to be one that is that is appointed or one that uh, we, we don't really know where it began or where it ended. It seems to continue as some sort of voluntary thing. There's, there's a certain... Um, Oh, mystery to what's going on in the Old Testament related to that. When uh, David talks about it in Psalm 110, that's the first time in about 400 years that there's any reference to Melchizedek. You have the reference in Genesis 14 in relationship to uh, Abraham. And, of course, historically that occurred about 2000 B.C. It's written in 1400. The next writing related to it is David when he writes Psalm 110, which is approximately... Uh, a thousand BC. 
So that's all we really know about it. But when David brings the ark into Jerusalem and he's dancing in front of the ark and he's dressed in an ephod, he seems to be functioning as a priest, yet he's not from the Levitical tribe, but he is in Jerusalem, the same city as Melchizedek. He is functioning as a, pre, as a royal priest. And so there, is a, there seems to be a legitimacy to a parallel priesthood in the Old Testament. But what the writer of Hebrews is showing is that the Levitical priesthood was intended to be temporary, and therefore it is inferior to this older uh, Melchizedekian priesthood. Third thing we saw that that e- that even in the Old Testament, when everything was going well with the Levitical priests, they were functioning well. There was nothing uh, negative said about the Levitical priests. A change was indicated 400 years after its inception. When David wrote Psalm 110, he is prophesying about a future event that, in relationship to the Messiah. The Messiah will be a a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that indicated that there was this temporary aspect to the Levitical uh, priesthood. All of this is designed, if we think in terms of where we're going, it's designed to show that the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is far superior to that of the high priestly ministry according to the Mosaic Law. This leads eventually to a discussion in chapter 8 where, again, based on Psalm 110, which is alluded to in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there will be a superior covenant. So all of these ideas work together. Now, last time we looked at Hebrews 7:11. Therefore, the, he, the writer concludes after his discussion in the first 10 verses, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood for, and then in parenthetical thought he says, for under it, that is under the Levitical priesthood, and through the Levitical priesthood, on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. The priests were responsible for communicating the law, teaching the law to the people. He says, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron. And we saw last time that the if here is a second-class condition, which represents a condition of unreality. The author is assuming it's not true. He's basically saying if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, and of course we know it didn't, then what need would there be for another priesthood? What he's basically saying is that if we set it up as, as a syllogism, he would be saying, first of all, if completion came through the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need for another priest because everything would be fulfilled with the Levitical priesthood. Nothing more would be needed. But there is another priesthood. He's been arguing for the priesthood, the royal priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the eternality of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Therefore, he's concluding, this is the implication of his argument, the Levitical priesthood is limited and temporary. It was never designed to be permanent. Now, last time, 
I took the time to go back into the Old Testament to go to passages in uh, Leviticus to talk about the kinds of qualifications that were necessary to be a Levitical priest. And the qualifications were all physical and they were all genetic. You had to be a descendant of Levi to be the high priest. You had to be the physical descendant of Aaron and go through a particular line of descent. You also had to fit certain physical qualifications. There couldn't be any physical defects. You couldn't be lame, crippled. You couldn't have leprosy or uh, some other problems. And so there's nothing said about spirituality. There's nothing said about their relationship to the Lord. That's what makes it uh, part of what makes it an inferior uh, priesthood. You only had physical and genetic requirements. So we can create a little comparison chart here between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is incomplete. That's what Hebrews 11, uh, 7.11 is saying. If completion were through the Levitical priesthood, and it's not, so it's incomplete, but the Melchizedekian priesthood is complete. The Levitical priesthood is impermanent. It's temporary. It was only intended for a short time. Yet the Melchizedekian priesthood, according to Psalm 110.4, is forever. So it is viewed as a permanent priesthood. And then the Levitical priesthood, because the Levitical priests are sinners, because they have to uh, still be cleansed of their own sins, they have to offer sacrifices for themselves, and even these sacrifices that they're offering are inadequate, as the writer of Hebrews will go on to say in, in chapter 10, that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, that it is an inferior priesthood, yet the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior. It's based on the Messiah, who is the uh, eternal Davidic high priest, and he is perfect. He perfectly complies with the law. So the, his argument is that, the, it, that based on Old Testament revelation, there was this prophecy regarding the Melchizedekian priesthood that it would supplant the Levitical priesthood in when the Messiah came. Now, one of the problems that they had was that uh, these uh, Jews, Jewish believers that uh, the writer of Hebrews is addressing very likely were influenced by some of the theology that characterized the Essenes who lived in the Qumran community. Not all of them lived at Qumran. Qumran is located down by the Dead Sea. The Qumran is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that area. This was a... It wasn't quite a monastic community because some had their, had wives there, but it was a very uh, ascetic community. They had a high standard of righteousness, but they also had a fairly well-developed uh, eschatology, a fairly well-developed view of prophecy. But it wasn't necessarily what we would understand to be biblical. But they did have a well-developed view of prophecy, which was laid out in some of their writings. They thought there would be two messianic figures. One of them would be a priestly Messiah who would be descended from the tribe of Aaron, and another would be a royal Messiah who would rule over Israel. But in their view, the royal Messiah would be subordinate to the 
priestly Messiah, uh, there was a descendant from Aaron. They looked at a future golden age that would be brought in by a new uh, prophet who would reestablish this Aaronic priesthood and restore and cleanse the old system. And the Aaronic priest would be over everything. He would be the ultimate authority in Israel in the new golden age. So if they were influenced by that, they, they're having a question about, well, what's going on with Jesus and his high priesthood? So this has to be straightened out, and they have to be shown that the old Levitical system is going to end, and that that priesthood was insignificant. And the law are, are, was not insignificant, but that old priesthood was not permanent and would not provide uh, long-range spiritual value. Now, the priesthood, as we see in the next verse, for the priesthood being changed, of necessity there's also a change of the law, is directly connected to the Mosaic law. So you can't separate the Aaronic priesthood, uh, high priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, from the Mosaic law. The, the Mosaic law establishes the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood provides the qualifications for the Levitical priesthood, and then it is through the Levitical priesthood that the law is taught and propagated down through the generations. Now, as we come to this, we always have a problem with Christians today with trying to understand the role of the Mosaic law to today. How does the Mosaic law relate to Christians today? Is it just completely irrelevant? Does it have some relevance? Or are we to live under parts of it? Those are basically the three options. And you often hear people say, well, we're in the church age. The Mosaic law has no application whatsoever. Hmm. Now, what do you do with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? Because when Paul wrote first, uh, wrote. First Timothy, I mean Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, that all Scripture is God breathed. He's talking about the Old Testament, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He's talking to Timothy in terms of how the Old Testament Scriptures were used by his mother and his grandmother to teach him, and that they are this, the Old Testament Scripture still has value. So you can't come along, and many people get this idea that if you're a dispensationalist, that means that you just look at the Bible and say, well, forget the Old Testament. And dispensationalists, or some dispensationalists, have been their own worst enemies. I knew a very good doctrinal pastor up in uh, Dallas. He never taught the Old Testament. He went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Never taught the Old Testament in almost 50 years of pastoral ministry. He never taught an Old Testament book. He majored in Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, and then he would go back and do it all over again. And there have been other dispensationalists who have done it. They want to focus on the mystery doctrine of the church age and what we have in Christ and the spiritual life to the exclusion of almost everything else. And so there's no teaching on the Old Testament, yet the Old Testament is still considered by the Apostle Paul to be applicable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So there is a place for the Old Testament. So it's not irrelevant. We don't just take out our razor blades and cut out the Old Testament and say, well, that's just that's historical, that's interesting, that uh, helps us understand a little bit about 
the background for the New Testament, it has greater relevance than that. We also come to the Mosaic Law, and we think, well, that just had to do with the how God wanted Israel to operate. So that really doesn't have any application today. And so that some people have even said, well, you know, they had all that legalism. That's what the law was. It was all about legalism. And that's contrasted to grace. We read in the New Testament this contrast between law and grace. So we, we've got to exclude the Mosaic Law. Well, that's not quite right either because when you do that, you completely misunderstand the purpose for the law and the nature of the law. So let me give you about seven points in understanding uh, the significance of the Mosaic Law and its relevance for the church age. First of all, we have to understand that the law is basically good and holy and righteous. We'll get into specifics uh, in a second. First of all, the law was loved by Old Testament saints. The law was viewed as holy, and Old Testament saints valued the law more than anything else. Just read passages like Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. The law was to be meditated on day and night, uh, Psalm 1. Psalm 19, more to be desired, that is, the principles of the law was to be more desired than anything else in life. And that's just not related to the spiritual side of the law. There's, they don't come in and make that kind of a distinction in terms of the way they treat the Torah. The Torah was the basis for health and happiness and stability in the nation and strong families. So the law was loved intensely by the Old Testament saint. Second point, when you get into the New Testament and Paul comments on the law, he says in Romans 7:12 that the law was holy, righteous, and good. So we can't come in and say, well, golly, the law led to legalism. No, the sin nature led to legalism. The law was, in its very essence, holy and righteous and good. So we can't come in and, and uh, just negate it. What, what we tend to do is look at the Mosaic Law through the legalistic lens of the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law in the Gospels. And as I pointed out last time, what happened in Judaism was that after the return to, to, um, to Israel from the Babylonian captivity, once they were building the second temple, they began to try to figure out why it was that God had disciplined them so severely. And it was because they had violated the 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. So they said, well, let's, let's build a fence around the law. And that was the rabbinic traditions. So, for example, if the uh, law said that you can't boil a calf in the mother's milk, then they came up with a tradition that said, okay, that means that we can't, we can't mix dairy products with uh, meat products at all. Because it just might be that if we uh, take a dish and we have steak on it one day, and uh, the next day we have cheese on that same plate, that even though we washed it to the best of our ability, there might be one molecule of meat and that's left on that plate, and it gets mixed with that cheese, and there just may be the possibility that that cheese comes from the mother of the calf that produced 
the meek. And so there may, it may be an infinitesimal chance that they're related, but we can't take that chance because God will kick us out of the land again. So we're going to have to have one set of dishes and one set of cookware for meat and a completely different set of dishes and a completely different set of, of uh, uh, cookware and silverware and everything for dairy. And that's true. You go to Israel today, you go to a kosher place. That's last year we stayed at a hotel that was a dairy restaurant. You could not get beef. You could only get fish, and you could get various pasta uh, dishes, but you couldn't get lamb or beef or chicken uh, with, with your meal because it was a dairy restaurant. Now, if you ordered from room service, you could order a steak or a hamburger or something like that, but they had two different kitchens. And if you go to McDonald's, you can't get cheeseburger. can't mix dairy and meat if it's a kosher McDonald's. And you can come to the first floor, and you can get a get your uh, Big Mac and eat it, and then you can go upstairs and get your milkshake. But they have to come out of completely... Isn't legalism wonderful? So they built this fence around the law, and that became codified in the Mishnah. And then later on, they built a second fence around that, which became codified in the Talmud. The Talmud is basically a commentary on the Mishnah. And when you see a Talmud, it'll have a, a large page like this, and in the middle of the page, it will have the Mishnah, and then there'll be a border around that, and then you'll have writings in the margins, top and bottom, left and right, and that's the Talmud, that's rabbinical commentaries on the Mishnah. So they built these fences, and the idea was that if they, they establish these traditions, then if you don't break the tradition, then you won't break the law. And so it's to keep you away from, keep the Jews away from breaking one of those 613 commandments. And that's legalism. Okay? That's, but that's not saying, that doesn't indicate that the law is bad. That is a misuse and abuse and misinterpretation of the Mosaic law. But the New Testament says that the law was holy, righteous, and good. The third point we have to recognize is that the Mosaic law was given only to the nation Israel as their national law. It wasn't a law code to govern the Babylonians or to govern the Assyrians or to govern the Egyptians or to govern any other people. In fact, if you look at the basis, the condemnations, the judgments that are laid out in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the judgments against Tyre, the judgments against uh, Sidon, the judgments against Babylon, the judgments against Assyria, the judgments against Egypt, and you read those, they are held accountable for two things and two things only. Number one, they're held accountable for their idolatry. And that goes back, that predates the Mosaic Law. That's not, they're not being held accountable for anything that is unique to the Mosaic Law. And the second thing they're held accountable for is their treatment of Israel, which has to do with the uh, the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant that God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So the Mosaic law was not, no nation, no Gentile was obligated to keep the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was just for Jews. It had to do with their, civil, their, their criminal law. It had to do with their civil law. And it had to do with their ceremonial law. Those three aspects and they're interwoven. You can't just say, okay, 
these chapters relate to the criminal law, then these chapters relate to the civil law, and these chapters relate to the, to the ceremonial law, although you can break out the ceremonial law more than you can uh, the civil and ceremonial law. Those are uh, kind of woven together, but all of them are uh, interwoven because it deals with the whole fabric of the culture and of the society. So the Mosaic Law it represents God's revelation in relationship to how a fourth divine institution, nation, a government, should operate. So there are implications and applications from the Mosaic Law because the Mosaic Law shows how a national entity should support and defend the divine institutions of human responsibility, marriage, family, government. How, because part of the responsibility of the government of any nation is to protect and promote the five divine institutions, which are personal responsibility, marriage, family, government, and national distinctions, not giving up your identity uh, to internationalism, not saying, okay, we're going to make up our, our uh, laws on the basis of what the French do or the basis of what the Dutch do or the Germans do. We don't, but it, unfortunately we're losing that in our country. We have Supreme Court justices who are thinking, oh, well, let's see how the Germans and the French and everybody else handles this and let's base our law on uh, somebody else's law. And that's just the road to perdition. It's a rejection of the fifth divine institution. But that's what we see with the Mosaic Law is it gives us a pattern for how criminal law and civil law ought to uh, function in terms of various uh, penalties and in terms of how it's applied. So it doesn't mean you do it the same way, but it gives you a pattern or a model, uh, but it's not mandated for every nation. Fourth point we ought to recognize is that the law was for believers and unbelievers alike, for every citizen of Israel. If you were either a Jew or if you were a Gentile proselyte, you came under the Mosaic Law, whether you were a believer or an unbeliever. It wasn't just for believers. Fifth, the law did not provide a way of salvation. Salvation did not come by obeying the law. Paul recognized this, that what the law did was expose man's inability to to please God and to live up to his standard. It didn't provide a means for living up to God's standard. The purpose of the law was to show an already redeemed people how they should live. Remember, redemption is pictured nationally in Israel by their uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea. Once they are a redeemed people and they are freed, then they are given the law. They're not given the law to show them how how to become free. They are first freed by God's grace and then given the law as to show how a redeemed people uh, is supposed to live. Sixth, the law revealed what was necessary to be in fellowship with God in terms of the, the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law uh, condemns as ceremonial uncleanness many, many things, that if you touch a dead body, if you do this, if you do that, if you have certain kinds of sores on your body, you are unclean. If you uh, give, if a woman gives birth, then she's unclean for a certain number of days. All kinds of different things that rendered a person ceremonially unclean. That did not mean that necessarily that all of those things were 
sins. Many of them were sins. Many of them were not sins. But they related to something uh, that had uh, significance, pedagogical value related to uh, the condemn- uh, the guilt of sin, the pervasiveness of sin. Uh, for example, if you touched a dead body, death is the result of sin. So if you touch a dead body, then you become ceremonially unclean and you have to, uh, certain sacrifices have to be performed before you can go into the, the uh, tabernacle or temple to worship. So the, the ceremonial uncleanness is different from morality and immorality and spirituality. It was a, but it was a tool that was used to picture those things. So the law reveals that just about anything you do can make you ceremonially unclean. Just like in life, just about anything you do is tainted by sin and you break fellowship with God. So you have to be constantly alert and aware and conscious of what you're doing and what you're thinking so that you don't get out of fellowship. Seventh, the law was a pedagogue which led to Christ. This was the Roman custom. This is referred to in Galatians chapter 3 that the pedagogue was a tutor that was hired to train up the young child and to teach discipline to the young child and to train them to be an adult. But once they became an adult, then the pedagogue was no longer necessary. And that's what the law is pictured as, and a human race is pictured as being immature or childlike. And so during the period of the Mosaic Law, the law... Uh, gives very rigorous, strict answers as to what you can do and what you can't do. But once you get into maturity in the church age, then you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the completed canon of Scripture. And so then that strict law aspect that dictates every detail in life is no longer there. And as a mature person, you now have responsibility uh, to make make the right decisions. So the law has value in terms of a pattern for law, but it doesn't have value for the spiritual life or for salvation. Now, let's look at Hebrews 7.12. Take a minute to exegete through the passage and look at it grammatically. For tells us that it's an explanation. It's an explanation of the principle laid down in the previous verse through the second class condition. For the priesthood being changed. And here we have the a participial form of the verb metatithemi. Metatithemi, which denotes a change of place or condition. It's a combination of two words, meta and tithemi. Meta, the preposition, denotes a change of place or condition. And tithemi, place. So it has to do with transposing something to put one thing in place of another sub substituting one thing for another, and hence comes to mean to transport, to transfer, to translate, to basically change something. And then we have a related word in the second part of the verse, uh, the noun form, met, uh, metathesis, which has to do with transposition, moving something from one place to another. So we have the statement for the priesthood being changed of necessity, and that word for necessity is the preposition ek plus the noun ananke, meaning from an internal compelling force. That there's an there's an essential or inherent logic to the whole situation that when you move from a temporary insufficient priesthood 
to an eternal, permanent, sufficient priesthood, that there's a, there's a logic that that kind of a transition changes everything. It's not going to be the same. The Mosaic law must end because the priesthood has ended, because the former priesthood was, was essential to the Mosaic law. So once the priesthood is, is supplanted by a superior priesthood, there's going to be a substitution of a superior law and thus a superior covenant. So this is a great passage to indicate that a major shift takes place at the t- with the death of Christ on the cross, that the law is going to end. So therefore, everything that has been operational and normative for 1,400 years since the giving of the Mosaic Law comes to a conclusion, and we go into a completely new era with a new priesthood, a new spiritual life, and a new high priest. And the new high priest is not going to be based on the old order, but is going to be based on a superior order, which is the order of Melchizedek. And so this sets up, and and the foundation for for this, of course, is what we call dispensationalism. Complete change of the law. And Romans 3.27 says that the law contrasts the old law uh, with the new law and relates the old law to works. Paul says in Romans 3.27, Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? The law of works, he's saying? No. But by the law of faith. So he's contrasting a law of faith with the law of works, that it's not on the basis of works, but it's on the basis of faith. So there is a new law which supplants the old law. So this is related to the new priesthood. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. It's not limited, according to the order of Melchizedek. So at the very least, this involves what we call a dispensational shift. Now, there are those who would say that everybody's a dispensationalist at one sense. If you're not going to uh, Jerusalem, if you're not sacrificing animals, then you recognize that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that is a rather silly argument because there's a lot of people who don't understand uh, what dispensationalism is, and there's a lot of distortion and the teaching of, uh, by some people of what dispensationalism is. So I think it's important for us to go back and understand what dispensational teaching is all about. So we need to answer the question, what is a dispensation? Well, many people get confused at this point. Let me try to clarify this. Most of us think of dispensation in terms of a time frame. Actually, the term dispensation really doesn't have a time aspect to it. That comes from other words. So just keep that in mind as I go through this explanation. First word we want to look at is the term seasons. This is a translation of the Greek word kairos. Sometimes it's translated ages or times. Different English translations use different words. And it indicates broad expanses of times, not quite the, you know, synonymous with ages. 
But these seasons or these times have definable characteristics. It's very easy to look at the period before the cross and say that's clearly different from the period after the cross. The period of the millennial kingdom is clearly different from the present age. There are measurable, quantifiable, definable differences in these ages. So at the very least, we have three ages. We have the age of the Mosaic Law, we have the church age, and we have the future kingdom. Those are clearly spelled out in Scripture. That's why I've used those three uh, examples. We also have the word age, which comes from the Greek word ion, which relates to a period of time. These two words focus on the uh, temporal aspect of God's plan, that there are different times and seasons. The third word that's used is this word, oikonomos. See, that's where we get our word economy. Oikonomos, economy. You can hear the similarity. Now, we think of economy as having to do with money. But it's the, the root meaning in the Greek has to do with stewardship or how you handle money or financial affairs or things that you're responsible for. And it comes to refer to an administration. And that's the idea in a dispensation is that God is going to administer human history in different ways in different eras. There are some things that are going to be the same. In all the ages, whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, salvation is always by grace through faith. The object of faith is going to differ. Whether you're living in the Old Testament or New Testament, there are certain principles related to the spiritual life and faith rest living that are similar. But there are also differences. In the Old Testament, believers did not have the Old Testament living, I mean, excuse me, they didn't have the Holy Spirit living Within them, in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit living inside every believer. In the Old Testament, the, there's a term related to the filling of the Spirit, but it has nothing to do with the filling of the Spirit in the, in the New Testament era. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon certain key individuals who had responsibility in administering the kingdom of Israel. You had the Holy Spirit coming upon the... Uh, uh, those who, the craftsmen who were constructing the tabernacle, who, the goldsmith, the jewelers, the carpenters, uh, the chief men were Bezalel and Aholiab, and the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them with skill to do what they were doing in constructing the tabernacle. You, later on, you have the judges. Some of the judges have the Holy Spirit come upon them to give them military skill. But it doesn't have anything to do with inspiration. It doesn't have anything to do with, with holy living. Uh, you have examples of Gideon. Uh, just as the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he does certain things that are disobedient to the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes on Jephthah, and Jephthah swears to God he'll, he'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house to greet him if God will give him victory. He's bargaining with God. He's going to end up sacrificing his daughter. You have Samson, the Spirit of God comes upon Samson, and he's a womanizer. And the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives is not related to their spiritual life, their spiritual growth, but to give them ability to do what God 
wants them to do in relationship to the administration of the kingdom. Later on, the Holy Spirit comes on the king, Saul, and then leaves Saul. The Holy Spirit comes upon David. The Holy Spirit inspires the writers of Scripture, the prophets. But the role of the Holy Spirit is very different in the Old Testament. You get in the New Testament, every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And then when we're in fellowship, the Holy Spirit is active in a special way related to our spiritual growth that is referred to as the filling of the Spirit. So these words indicate different aspects of God's plan and God's and the outworking of that plan historically. The terms for times and seasons, Ionos and Kairos and Kronos, have to do with the temporal aspect, that they're different time periods. And then Oikonomos has to do with how God is administering human history during those time periods. And that leads us to the word dispensation. And perhaps the simplest term, or the simplest definition for dispensation is simply to say that it is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Now, I'm just going to stop there with that bit of a definition. When we take this word and apply it consistently as a theological system or as a, as a uh, system of interpretation, then it becomes known as dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is unique. It is completely different from all other theological systems. You have a number of different overall theological systems. The one that is most often contrasted with uh, dispensationalism is covenant theology. Covenant theology is usually associated with uh, Reformed theology, Presbyterian theology associated with Calvinism, uh, Reformed, I mean, uh, covenant theology emphasizes two theological covenants, not biblical covenants. See, we all believe in biblical covenants, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the New Covenant, everybody believes in those. But when you talk about covenant theology, the covenants that they're referring to are not the biblical covenants. They're talking about extrapolated theological covenants, that when Adam was first placed in the garden, there was a condition placed upon him that if he was going to have eternal life, he would not eat from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. So it was a covenant of works, they would say. And then after Adam ate from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil and sinned, then God established a covenant of grace. And so in covenant theology, you primarily have these two covenants, a covenant of works till Adam sinned, and then the rest of human history is a covenant of grace. And there are some within the uh, Reformed camp who will say there's a third covenant, the covenant of redemption. But for them, there's just this one covenant of, work, of, uh, of grace that began with Adam and extends all the way through history. Now, that fits in their understanding of Scripture because they see that the primary purpose of the Bible and God's plan in history is redemption. It's redemption. Redemption of who? Redemption of the human race. What about angels? Oh, well, they're not included. See, that's a limitation in covenant theology is it really doesn't deal well with the angels because... 
the purpose of the Bible is redemptive. Angels don't get redeemed, so that's, they're sort of left out. I remember several years ago I was going over to Russia to teach on spiritual warfare, and uh, Joe Wall had asked me to come over and teach, and he said, well, you've done a lot of work on spiritual warfare. Why is it that within the Reformed camp very little has ever been written on spiritual warfare until the 20th century? They get forced into some things because that's what other people are talking about. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But this is why. is because within the Reformed camp, they haven't given enough emphasis to, uh, like, the Holy Spirit or to angels or some of these things. They don't give enough attention to the Holy Spirit. The two, you talk to anybody who's ever gone to seminary, and you ask, what are the two most important books ever written on the Holy Spirit? And they'll tell you that it was John Owen's book on the Holy Spirit. John Owen's was... Uh, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, written in the 1600s, around 1640, 1650, and Abraham Kuyper's work on the Holy Spirit, written in the 1890s. Neither one of them even mentions the indwelling, the filling, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, this is Reformed theology. Everything's basically the same. That's why they end up saying there's one people of God. There's Israel up until they reject Christ as Messiah, then they are replaced with the church. But the church now becomes the heir to all of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land is no longer going to be a physical land. It's now spiritualized to heaven. And that's what happens in Reformed theology. It is a form, one form of replacement theology. Now, you have to be careful. I've watched a couple of the specials on TV in the last year looking at, uh, you know, watching A&E or one of the other uh, other channels, and they'll talk about replacement theology and they'll talk to a Roman Catholic priest and say, oh, we don't believe in replacement theology. What they're doing is they're loading the term with anti-Semitism. So they, they're, they're, they want to make it an extreme form of replacement theology. But replacement theology is the view that the church replaces Israel in God's plan and so genetic Israel is no longer significant. Uh, the fact that the Jews are back in the land is no longer significant because God is through with Israel. He's through with the Jews. The only way a Jew can have any significance is to become a Christian and forget the fact that he's a Jew. So there is an element to replacement theology that can breed anti-Semitism. But just because somebody's got a form of replacement theology that doesn't mean they'll breed anti-Semitism. Now, I mentioned covenant theology. That's one form of replacement theology. You also have Lutheran theology. You have Eastern Orthodox theology. You have various other smaller categories of theology, Church of Christ, other schools of thought. But they all have one thing in common. They all buy into replacement theology in one way or another. Only dispensationalism draws a consistent distinction between God's plan and purposes for Israel on the one hand and God's plan and purposes for the church on the other hand. And that flows out of the fact that dispensational theology isn't developed abstractly. Like I say, covenant theology starts off with two covenants. Where do you find those two covenants in the Bible? You don't. They're abstract. They're, they're abstractly developed theologically, and then you impose that on the text. But even though you may hear people say, well, I'm a dispensationalist, so I think that that's what this verse means, 
don't take it that way. That's not what a dispensationalist is saying. He's saying he's a dispensationalist because that's what the Bible says. I remember about, I think it was about 10 years ago now, I went up to Dallas Seminary and I had a meeting with uh, John Walvoord and we were talking about various aspects of uh, sanctification. He had written a very good article in the early 80s called The Augustinian dispensational view of the spiritual life. Now, I'm not going to try to explain that to you, but the point was that Walvoord clearly understood that there was a view of the spiritual life that was unique to dispensationalism, that was distinct from all the other systems of theology, that there was a dispensational view of the of the Holy Spirit. And I would make the mistake of saying, well, if we look at this as a dispensational view, no, 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 Robbie, it's It's biblical. It's, we're, we're dispensationalists because it, that's what the Bible says. We, we don't think the Bible says that because we're dispensationalists. We're dispensationalists because that's what the Bible says. And he would correct me every time I would say that. He just, you know, really very good emphasis. We are dispensationalists because that's what the Bible says, not because we've developed a nice, tight, integrated theological system that we then read back into the text. That's what Reformed theology has done. That's what other systems have done. But dispensationalism begins with a consistent, literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. In fact, Dr. Ryrie, who was the uh, chairman of the Systematic Theology Department at Dallas Seminary for many years, wrote an excellent book on dispensationalism that came out in the 60s. It was originally called Dispensationalism Today, and he revised it in the 90s. And now it's just called dispensationalism. But Ryrie tried to boil down dispensational theology to its essential core. And he came up with three things that are the key to dispensationalism. First, dispensationalists believe in a literal, a consistent, literal, plain interpretation of Scripture. That doesn't mean that they uh, reject figures of speech or idioms or any of these kinds of things, but that language should be taken as how it's normally used in everyday speech unless there is something within the context that would cause you to understand that it should be taken in a more figurative sense. So the literal meaning should be the primary meaning unless something else comes along. So you have a because you have a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture that leads you to understand that when God promised Abraham a piece of real estate that was bordered by the river of Egypt and the river Euphrates and the Mediterranean, that that piece of real estate doesn't suddenly have its meaning changed to heaven just because the Jews reject Christ as their Savior. You can't shift the meaning of terms, which is how covenant theology and other systems do it, is that that land is now the land across the River Jordan. Now when we die, what happens? What did Stonewall Jackson, he was a good Presbyterian. What did Stonewall Jackson, some of you know that. What did Stonewall Jackson say? Pick, pick me up and take me and let me go across the river. Yeah, strike the tent. But he's talking about going across the river. And that was the idea was that that, that imagery is embedded in his Presbyterian theology that we're crossing the River Jordan to get into heaven. 
And so the land of Israel is now allegorized to heaven. The river Jordan is now allegorized to that transition point from physical life to spirit, to, to eternal life. And that's what happens when you get away from a literal interpretation. So dispensationalism starts with a literal hermeneutic, literal interpretation of scriptures that leads to a consistent distinction between Israel and the church. And the third point is that the overriding, the overarching theme of the, of all of scripture is the glory of God. See, when you, it's, it's broad enough to include God's plan for the angels and God's plan for man. It's not limited to redemption, which is what covenant theology does, but it's for the glory of God. So it can include God's plan for the angels, God's plan for man, God's plan for all of creation. So this is the, the three key elements that uh, Dr. Ryrie emphasized and that is still understood by traditional dispensationalists to be the key to dispensationalism today. Now, where do we get this term dispensation? Well, the English word dispensation comes from the Latin dispensatio, which translates the Greek word oikonomos, which has the idea of weighing something out or dispensing something. The main idea is to deal something out to dispense it or distribute it. And the idea is that, that it, it fits into the idea of progressive revelation. God didn't dump everything in the Bible on Adam right there in Genesis 3. There's a progression to revelation. He reveals a little more to Noah, a little more to Abraham, a little more to David, a little more to Isaiah, a little more to uh, Malachi, a little more to Paul a little more to John. There's a progression to Revelation. And so in each era, there is a, a dispensing of that information so that at the core of this idea is the idea of Revelation, that Revelation has the fact that you have a certain amount of Revelation information implies a certain accountability to that information. So that brings in the idea of human responsibility. The idea in dispensations is the action of administering or ordering something so that there is an order to history. God is doing something. It's not just random events, but that God is working something out. And also the idea of administering or dispensing some requirement. The reason I say that is it brings in this idea, as I mentioned a minute ago, of accountability or responsibility of either obedience or failure in each one of these uh, dispensations. The English Dictionary, Webster's Third International Dictionary, lists the first primary meaning as a divine ordering and administration of worldly affairs. Pretty good. A, secondly, a system of principles, promises, and rules divinely ordained and administered. That brings in that idea of accountability, that there's one set of, of rules and principles laid out in the period before Noah. There's another set. There's modification that occurs with the Noahic covenant, and there's modification that occurs at the Abrahamic covenant. There's more modification that occurs in the Mosaic covenant, and then there's modification that occurs at the cross. 
the word dispensation is used in the or oikonomos is used in several key passages in the New Testament. We'll get to those in just a minute. Let me give you six features, six characteristics of a dispensation. First of all, in every dispensation, God is the one to whom men are responsible in discharging their responsibility. God is the one in charge. So that in each dispensational man is accountable to God for something. Second feature, second characteristic. Faithfulness is required of those to whom a dispensational responsibility is committed. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says it's required of a steward. That's that same word, different form of the word for economos or koinomia. That a that faithfulness is required of a steward. That's a great passage for pastors. Faithfulness is what God is going to evaluate a pastor on, not the size of the congregation, not how uh, big the choir was, not uh, the building program size or any of those things. It's faithfulness to the word, which leads me to the quote of the week. This is from a Southern Baptist pastor here in town. When he was talking with a assistant pastor of his who has been... Uh, meeting with me for some time, they got in a discussion over a passage in Proverbs, and so the young man who's been meeting with me said, I wonder what the Hebrew says, to which the, the Southern Baptist pastor replied something to the effect that only an idiot goes to the Hebrew to find out what the Bible means. That's the quote of the week. So, pastors are to be faithful to the word. Faithful to the word. Fourth characteristic of a dispensation. Dispensations are connected to mysteries in the New Testament. Mysteries are new revelation. So revelation is essential to understanding a dispensation. It's not just a time thing. It is that God is giving additional information. That additional information implies new responsibilities or accountability, and therefore the administration is changing. Fifth point is that the term dispensation and age are connected ideas, but they're not the same and they're not interchangeable. So sometimes we talk about the age of Israel, but the age of Israel is really composed of two different dispensations because there's a there's a revelation shift that occurs with the giving of the Mosaic Law. Abraham, at the time of Abraham, the call of Abraham, the giving of the Abrahamic Covenant, is a dispensational shift from God working through Gentiles to God working through Jews. He's never going to work through Gentiles again after Genesis 12. So there's a major shift that occurs there. But then you have the Mosaic Covenant, and there's another shift that takes place. So when God begins to call out Israel in Genesis 12, the age of Israel goes from Genesis 12 to the cross, but it's really divided into two dispensations based on Revelation. So a dispensation occurs within an age, but sometimes age and dispensation can be identical. We live in the church age. It's also a dispensation, and it begins and ends at the same time. So... They, they can overlap or they can, a dispensation can be a smaller part of an age. Uh, 
And then sixth, God has clearly demarcated certain chronological divisions in human history. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Ephesians 1.10, with a view to an administration or dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. There's a, an administration or dispensation called the fullness of times. When is that? That's the millennial kingdom. So that's clearly demarcated in Scripture as a separate time period. Then you have Ephesians 3, 8, and 9. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is, present tense, the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. It clearly states a present administration and implies a previous administration where this information was hidden. So just looking at those two verses, we see three dispensations, the future millennial kingdom, the present church age, and the period before the present church age. And Paul mentions these three dispensations. Uh, Ephesians 1.10, we just mentioned Ephesians 3.2, the, the administration or stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, that would be the present church age, and Colossians 1, 25 and 26 of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me uh, for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, I lost the second half of that verse. Colossians 1, 26 is where we see the previous dispensation. Colossians 1, 26 The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, that's the previous uh, dispensation. It's interesting, the doctrinal statement of Dallas Seminary only defines these three dispensations. Some people get the idea that a dispensationalist depends on how many dispensations you believe in. But that's not true. Dallas Seminary just has these three in their doctrinal statement. So it's not a matter of how many dispensations you have. It's a matter of Primarily, I believe, the consistent distinction between Israel and the church. Well, we'll get back to dispensations next time. We need to get through this introduction because we'll go into covenants, the role of covenants in history, and that will help us understand and set things up for chapter 8 in Hebrews. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this time that we can study these things, come to see your work in history, the panorama of your grace through history, and the outworking uh, of your plan in different eras based upon the amount of revelation given. We pray that we might be responsive to your truth in every area of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.